like I don't have a partner. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in, the city of angels. Lonely as I am, together we cry. I drive on the streets cause she's my companion. I walk through the hills cause she knows who I am. She sees my good deeds and she kisses the wind. I never worry, now that is a lie. I don't ever wanna feel like I did that day. Take me to the place I love, take me all the way. I don't ever wanna feel like I did that day. Take me to the place.
Greetings and good day. This is Tabitha. Welcome to White Wellness Radio. Today is August 16th, 2022, broadcasting out of New York for White Wellness Radio. That song right there was the Red Hot Chili Peppers with Under the Bridge way back in 1991. So the topic and the title of today's broadcast is the trance agenda, kind of a groovy play on words with the other phrase we've probably been hearing for about the last decade, the trans agenda. And it's not going to be just about that because, well, that's just one aspect of being in a trance state is believing something as ridiculous as the whole LGBT premise of, quote, gender ideology, something that doesn't actually biologically exist. But it's more than that. There are many things out there that keep us in a trance. So that's why I called it the trans agenda. So to start out, like we like to do, the word of the week. All right. The word is quack salver. The word quack plus the word salver. At the height of the bubonic plague in Europe during the 1340s, many charlatans took advantage of frightened people by selling them useless salves and accompanying treatments. Kind of sounds like what happened with all your AI, right? The Dutch called those people quackensalvers, later shortened to quacks, from the resemblance to ducks quacking when they sold their ointments. One such medicine was administered internally for the relief of symptoms of pestilence in the 1590s, was called the philosopher's egg. And also remember that the word quack selber, that's a German word, that means quick silver. And that is essentially what is in thermometers. Of course, that's mercury. It's another word for mercury is quick silver. So back in the day, any doctor, this is back when things were a bit more normal in history, any doctor who was peddling a, quote, treatment that utilized heavy metals, just like, you know, vaccination, MRI, all the radiology things that they do these days, which of course those things cause medical problems for people, even though they offer, you know, quote, protection. Of course, we know that's that's a hoax with vaccination, and they offer diagnostics in the case of, of radiology. But that word was used to describe someone who was using allopathy, and they were basically a quack. So that's the emphasis of that with the whole mercury thing. But it's, isn't it interesting now how when someone is holistically minded and doesn't believe in vaccination and believes in using, you know, diet and lifestyle and emotional healing to treat someone's um, medical ailment, that person is called a quack. So like everything else, complete and total inversion. So again, the word is quack salver, referring to the salves, but even going back further to the German word quack salver. And yes, a lot of their treatments have mercury in them. Just think about the whole idea of the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland and how haberdasheries used to utilize mercury to do the, their curing of, of hats. So you can go mentally ill or what's perceived as, quote, mental illness when you have a high heavy metal load, especially if someone's mineral load is low, which is so much more easy to be able to a person like that is usurped into a lot of the trances, a lot of the trans agendas we have today. I'm assuming anyone who fell for the OAAI vaccination and just the whole, you know, quote, pandemic as um, as a thing was someone who probably had high levels of iron who was living in fear of something that didn't even exist. So mind-zoggling, living in fear of something that doesn't even exist. I mean, we really do live in a post-truth world. 
And it makes me think of this, that's part of the whole trance agenda is living in a post-truth world because you'd have to be in a trance to be able to accept some of the things now that pass for reality. I saw this film yesterday. I'm going to put the link in the archives when I archive the show. I already put it on Telegram, but for those of you who don't follow me on Telegram, it was called What is a Woman? And it was made by, I think, probably someone that some of you know who it is, a fellow named Matt Walsh. I wasn't really too familiar with him before I saw this movie, but it is a documentary that seemed like it was pretty hard to find. Like, I think it was pulled on Netflix, and, you know, Amazon Primate, obviously, right? Because I don't want this getting out. But he goes around the country, and he even goes to foreign countries and asks all these people from lib shit, uh, you know, quote, academics to rural Africans to get an idea of what a woman is. And really nobody could tell him what it was, especially the academics. It was, it was really painful to watch that people could be so detached from reality, but it's a good movie, especially for any, quote, normies out there who don't see the um, agenda for what it is and how it's harming youngsters. And they also uh, talk historically about the whole movement of that and its Jewish roots, but they don't talk about it being Jewish. But if someone was aware of the people they promoted in that movie, like John Money, who was um, a doctor, I guess it's even a bad word to use because technically a doctor is a healer, someone who basically experimented on children and made them transsexual. I think he was a pedophile too, as well as Kinsey. But yeah, very interesting film. Uh, Really just shows how deep this trance can go. And two things that I picked up from this, or three things that I picked up from this movie, which were really just wow i just wanted to share them but the first thing i just wanted to do is just read a little blurb about it in case anyone is interested in seeing it so commentator matt walsh and director justin folk it's a much watch assessment of the they're calling it the transgender movement the program should be viewed with great urgency by anyone concerned about the further disintegration of western civilization over the past several years the transgenderism has opened up a new front in ongoing war upon traditional understanding of human condition, which has informed much of the public in the West until just over 50 years ago. The first attack, of course, was legislating racial equality. And that's why the monogenism lie of out of Africa is the root of the, of course, I call it transsexual or transhuman, transhuman agenda, because first they were able to fool people that race the races are equal. Now they're trying to fool people that not just that the sexes are equal, that you could become the other sex. And what's after this? Becoming um, a different race? Becoming an animal? Like this film that I watched, this What is a Woman film, they talked about not just children who thought they were the opposite sex, but children who thought they were like a cat or a dog or a wolf. So transspecial in this sense. And as an educator in one of these, you know, lib shit schools, wherever this was in America, you weren't allowed to tell the child, no, you're not a dog, a cat or a wolf. You had to indulge them and essentially gaslight them, which is a form of emotional abuse. And if you identify as one of those animals, you're in the category of being queer. I remember when that word just meant bizarre. I I liked the days better when that word just meant bizarre. So, of course, the first attack was legislating racial equality. And, of course, that even goes back further. You can take that back to when 
I guess in this country they gave the vote to Negro men before they gave it to white women. Let's never forget that, right? And then, of course, we had the Immigration Act of uh, 1965, which was passed by Oives. All of this was the little kind of stepping stones to the trans, trans, whatever agenda you want to call it. And now we are faced, then came, okay, so then came racial, first came racial equality, then came equality among the sexes with the whole third and fourth wave feminist movement, which of course was to take women out of the house to get to, um, you know, tattoo tax returns and have their children basically raised by help. And of course, a lot of the divorce was spurred by that movement as well. And then we have, after following equality for the sexes, we had equality for homosexuals, right? The homosexual all marriage thing, all of this, the race, the sexes, homosexuality, have been paving the way for this trans, trans agenda, right? So now we are faced with the biggest thing of all. We've, we've survived. I mean, it's been hard, but we've survived racial equality, equality of the sexes. We've survived um, homosexual equality. But that was really when it became, I think, and at least for me, brutally obvious what was going on because the homosexual thing is a very, very slippery slope to the transsexualism. So now we're faced with the biggest um, attack of all, transgender equality, which more than the previous attacks makes children both participants and casualties in this war. Before that, not really. It was an adult's game, but now, now they're out for the youth. They're out for the next generation. So it says these two men, Walsh and Folk, this is from Countercurrents, what I'm reading, have done a great job in exploring the proponents of transgenderism as the psychopathic ghouls they really are. But as we will see, they could have done more. That's what they're saying. I mean, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I thought it was a, I thought it was a really good movie overall. I mean, I guess they could have, they could have gone hardcore. I mean, Countercurrents is basically saying what what I would say and probably all of you listening would say, why didn't they show the obvious Jewish connection? Why didn't they make the Jewish connection? There is actually an Oive woman, older psychiatrist in this film, who is completely unaccepting of the transsexual agenda. And then sadly, there's many young uh, whites who are absolute ass lickers for this agenda. It's, it's always sadder and harder to see your own people race mix your own people fall for the transhuman, transsexual shit, right? Get the vaccine, et cetera. It's always, you know, it, it hits harder. But yeah, this is very much a movie that's worth watching. It's about an hour and a half. You can, you know, pretty much take it in all at once or, you know, in a couple of different segments if that's how you like to do things. But I agree with Countercurrents. They should have made the Jewish connection very much more um, obvious. They didn't make it obvious. If someone was already aware of that, they could see the connection, but chances are if someone's already like, you know, Skeksis wise, they're wise to the transsexual agenda. Typically people who aren't Skeksis wise are the only ones who are promoting this. So the three things that I took as a takeaway, and this really just shows how tranced out, how zoggy, zoggy, zoggy things are in this world. So here are some mind zoggling stats. If you thought last week's stats were mind zoggling with the things about pornography, which were in their own right mind zoggling, it gets even more mind zoggling. So after someone gets, quote, sex reassignment, of course, we know we can never reassign sex, we can just try to mimic the opposite sex. After someone gets this, quote, reassignment surgery, after seven to 10 years after the surgery, 
after the administration of hormones, that's when the individual is at the biggest risk for taking their life. So it kind of works the way Big Z lies about when someone's in, quote, remission after getting cut, burn, poison, you know, uh, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy for when they have cancer. If that person has lived five years after the cut, burn, poison, they've considered that they are a cancer survivor, even if the person dies after five years. So they will tell you, these people who are promoting the trans, trans agenda, they will tell you, oh, if you don't um, medicate with hormonal, quote, treatment and do, quote, reassignment surgery now, then the person's going to die right, right now, when, of course, that's a hollow hoax, like everything else out there. And seven to ten years later is when probably reality starts to really sink in, and that's when the risk becomes. So what's going to happen in seven to ten years with all these youngsters who are being carved up, right? Terrible to think about. And two other stats before we go on to some more appetizing information. Well, maybe not. Some of the stuff on this show is, well, yeah, it's, it's, this is not appetizing. The other stuff I have planned is definitely more, um, it's, it's stuff that we want to hear more so. So here are some other stats. When a child is deemed to be, you know, dysphoric or, you know, whatever they want to use, non-binary, um, trans quote, gender, you know, whatever, just, just brainwashed essentially by the trans agenda, the Skeksis trans agenda, Big Zog or Big Pharma will be able to generate $1.3 million off of that child. So everything is a commodity, especially in a post-truth world. Nothing is off limits, not even children. Pretty scary. And here is probably the, the thing that's going to make your hair stand up the most if that wasn't enough for you. One of these drugs they give to youngsters is called Lupron. It's also given to men who have prostate cancer. It actually chemically castrates somebody. Um, I'm sure we know what that means. There's two types of castration. There's physical and there's chemical. So this drug that they give to men who have prostate cancer, it chemically castrates them. And oftentimes after that, their sex life is in the absolute shitter or up to the toilet. So this drug is a puberty blocker. They give it to children who have been made dysphoric and they are too fearful to go through puberty. Anyone who's gone through puberty, I'm sure probably everyone listening, it's something that is a growing thing for whether you're, you know, male or female. It's it's one of those steps in our life and we can never halt it or stop it and expect that there's not going to be some type of risk or side effect. So they're giving these youngsters Lupron, which they originally give to men who have prostate cancer, which is a chemically castrating medicine. It causes osteoporosis. It causes um, dental issues because of the bone loss. But get a load of this. They also give it to pedophiles to chemically castrate them. So the same medicine they're castrating men who have prostate cancer with, they're using to castrate children and pedophiles. I mean, if, if that, if I was just told that one thing about the TS agenda and I was told nothing else, that's enough for me. I don't need anything more than to hear something like that, but unbelievable. I mean, there's, there's no, there's a, no more solid proof than that, that this agenda is connected to pedophilia. Mind zoggling, absolutely mind zoggling. That's why when I said last week on the broadcast that sex was the biggest rabbit or rabbi hole, 
I meant it. They've done so many dirty, disgusting, and just horrifyingly just shocking things to society. And people have accepted it. That's the worst part about it. That's the absolute worst part about it, that people have accepted it. Unbelievable. So yeah, that movie again is called What is a Woman? I will add the link in the um, archives when I post the, the you know, when I post this after the broadcast. But yowza, really, really crazy, crazy stuff. Um, I can't, I kind of can't believe this is actually even happening, that we live in a world where we just are past the point of reality or past the point of truth. You know, remember when I used to say the truth was anti-Semitic? Of course it is. But the truth is also transphobic and, you know, racist and Islamophobic and, you know, whatever, whatever else crazy shit. Let's take a gander at the chat. We've got a bunch of humans driving us, not driving us, um, joining us. Uh, greetings, everyone who's here. Epiphany is saying no treatment until 18 period, no exceptions. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, it is mind zoggling. Yeah, I'm not really for it for, for anybody, male or female, but I mean, I mean, a, a minor or, you know, adults, male or female. I just think it's, yeah, I think it's just, it's really crazy. Really, really crazy. And Tulian is saying, hey, White Wellness, hello. So yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. So speaking of the trance agenda and all that, there's been some very spicy topics brewing in the white wellness telegram chat over the, I guess, last week or so since I did a show. A lot of interesting stuff. It all started out with people kind of sharing their, um, their feelings and experiences, uh, mostly negative, probably all negative with, with pornography. And then it be, kind of became... A combination between um, race and you know sex and it became kind of like a contest of you know which which sex is superior even though it really wasn't so much about that it was more about rich which role is best for each sex and how that works for a better society for everyone including children because right now we live in a society that's really harmful to everyone but especially to youngsters I mean think about all the youngsters that grew up not really ever seeing an adult out of a mask. I mean, that's got to do a number on someone just, just physically. I mean, yikes. I mean, it's, it's, it's just hard. It's hard right now being small and being growing up in this, this world that some people in the chat were erroneously saying it was a matriarchal world, um, that it wasn't patriarchal. I think it's a, an emasculated patriarchal world and even that word it's been you know it's got the same treatment of the word nazi unfortunately right it's just everyone just um kind of relates to it in a way where no one wants to hear it it's just like how they always think every version of, of feminism is a bad thing but we learn of course essentially in every episode of this show that everything has been inverted so of course it would be their agenda it would behoove them to basically put out information that we would kind of end up hating like how many of us are not probably listening but other people are not sure or angry when they see the six-pointed star right and then people who are even more conditioned are angry when they see the swastika so they use symbols and words against people all the time um 
course, that's that's part of it's part of how it works. I mean, it has to be part psychological to be, I guess, effective, right? So I also did two polls in the um, the chat this week, asked two questions, and one of them was, which is harder for normies to come to grip with, that they are behind the world's foremost problem, or being a racial realist. So I think the racial realism is actually a lot harder. Um, and the poll actually reflected that it wasn't. The poll thought that uh, finding out that they are behind the world's foremost problem, that that actually was the harder thing to find out. But I think the race realism is a lot harder because we've been so conditioned for so long that everyone is is equal, right? Everyone has equal ability racially, and now they're telling us that, you know, sex-wise, that male and females have equal ability. That's why it's, you know, of course, no problem if a boy wants to be on a girl's sporting team, which I think there's a huge problem for that. That's not, that's not fair. That's really, that's a form of humiliation for the girls that work so hard, or the women who work so hard to get to that status. So I, I really think, you know, going back to the race thing, I think that finding out the race realism is a lot harder to accept than finding out that this hideous clique of, quote, elites are running the world. I think that's that's that seems a lot easier to accept, at least to me, than the race realism thing, which for some people, yeah, because I think the way it is, there, there are probably people out there who know about them, but definitely don't accept the race realism. And there are people who are race realists, and most of them, of course, know about them right so it's interesting how people thought it was them you know or the skexis that that would be a harder issue when technically anyone who's a race realist already knows that information hmm. i guess people weren't thinking about that when they took the poll who knows and then the other poll i did was about erotic blueprints and i wanted to talk a little bit about this i think this is really very interesting and since this is going to be an installment of the chakra show where we talked not last week we skipped because i did a show that was just about pornography but two weeks ago we talked about the ana no the vishuddha the throat chakra right so this week we're going to be talking about the ajna or the third eye and i figured since that's something that can be used of course to put someone into a trance and then also thinking about just spiritually with one's third eye and one's erotic blueprint, how it all works together to kind of get us out of this trance, right? Because everything out there is to kind of lull us to sleep, essentially. So let's go over this erotic blueprint. This is very, very interesting information. And I got some interesting responses in the chat, um, but I will be doing a show upcoming. I'm still trying to gather information. It hasn't really been that easy because sometimes there's not a lot of information on the topics that you you want to look at or it's just hard to find maybe it's behind a paywall maybe it's been 404 all of these things are possibilities of course but i'd like to do a show kind of getting getting an idea of how society really is supposed to be structured and i know that both of those words patriarchal and matriarchal can be very lack of a better word triggering for a lot of people. Um, I really saw a lot of people's raw emotions come out with, with use of both of those words. So I think a word really needs to be used 
that's that's different because those two words kind of have a trigger response like the word holocaust right but I will be doing a show at some point which will kind of demystify that and make it so it's appetizing for all of our people right well maybe not the ones who are degenerates but anyone who's Aryan it'll be up it'll be appetizing for so on to the erotic blueprints so this was a system that was invented by this woman named Jaya she's a sexologist and a, a sex coach like helping people's relationships and getting to you know uh, the root of their intimacy problems by finding out what blueprint someone was so I did a quiz also on telegram to see what everybody's type was and you know people if it's anonymous people are usually willing to answer questions like this but I just want to go over it a little bit on the show right here in case this is something that is new to you I think sometimes these little systems where we can get more of an idea of who we are are a good way to kind of get to know ourselves and do our own little diagnostic work on ourselves so there are five of these erotic blueprint types there is the main type like you know it's like it's outward appearance and then they all have a shadow side because of course everything has a shadow side whether it's you know good or bad essentially right so here are the five erotic blueprint types so number one is sensual this is someone who's turned on when all of their senses are being ignited this is someone who loves taste and smell they want to walk into a beautiful setting when they're coming into their into their erotic play they bring the artistry so the superpower of the sensual is they have full body access to orgasmic pleasure through sensation and it isn't always a general focused orgasm so it could be something that is very, very different. And that's the type that um, I think is probably more inclined to lean towards maybe some of the Taoist or the Tantra sexuality because they have uh, pleasure sensations, not just in the genital region, which of course in society, we're told that that's essentially the only area where it happens, which it's one of the areas, one of the most obvious areas because those areas when linked together will create life but it's not the only area so the first one is the sensual type and on the poll that I gave on the telegram most people 35% of people declared themselves the sensual type the next one is the energetic type actually I should read the shadow at the same time uh, for each one that would actually make more sense so the sensual side the sensual type shadow is getting too caught in their head that everything in the room is not right, the pillow is crooked, I'm worried about my body. It's all those things that attract, distract from the sexual, full body, erotic experience. So they like the sensuality of the environment, but they can also be a bit uptight about everything being perfect. Number two, the energetic type is someone who was turned on by anticipation, space, tease, longing, yearning. You may be an energetic if you feel everything before the kiss happens. So you're looking for the anticipation and that's even more arousing than the act or equally, right? It's that feeling. So someone like this is very, very sensitive. It doesn't take much to turn them on. If you drop a pebble into water, if you, uh, it'll just see the ripples going out just like that. And this type is, I think, the most inclined to 
be uh, sexually responsive to something like Taoist sexuality or, you know, Tantra, Kama Sutra, stuff like that. So the shadow of the energetic is um, people will think that this type is frigid. Remember that word that used to be used back in the day, typically to refer to women, not to men. So sometimes people will think that the energetic is frigid because there's just so much sensation that they short circuit because they have so much sensitivity. Part of the shadow side is that they can short circuit very easily and shut down because it's too much stimulation. This is someone probably who has a sensitive nervous system. And if you're throwing giant boulders in the water over and over again, as opposed to little pebbles, it's too much for the energetic. They just need the pebbles. This is someone who likes a really light touch because so much of the dance is, you know, within their their brain because of the anticipation, right? Very different to see how people can turn on in, in different ways. And of course, this isn't just about getting off. I hope that's clear to everyone listening. It's about what ignites you, right? And that could be used to create the energy of lovemaking, or it can be put into something else as well. And the creator of this, Jaya, says that we're all born as all of these types, and we'll get to the other ones. But then because of the things that happen in our life, we end up preferring, you know, one or two of, of these types. So the, so how many people identified as energetic on the poll I did? 12%. So as you can see, it's something that is less possible or less, not less possible, less popular. The sensual type is three times more people said they were sensual than energetic. So next is the sexual type. This is basically someone who was turned on by what we assume to be sex in our culture, nudity, genitals, orgasm, penetration, all of those things are basically most of the time focused in something like pornography. Not to say those things are bad, but that's what this culture focuses in on as sexuality, just those, you know, sexual parts. The superpower of the sexual is that they turn on pretty easily. A lot of men are this type, by the way, which makes sense. Women too, but it seems to be more of a male type. That's why a guy can just see a nice set of breasts and be ready, right? They can go from zero to 60 quickly. And if it's not that there's a lack of depth, it's just there's a simplicity like, I love this. This is what works. Let's do it. It's very straightforward. In some ways, it's easier to access arousal through the genitals. So what's the shadow of the sexual type? The shadow side for the sexual type is they get too focused on the genitals and too focused on the orgasm and too limited in their definition of what sexuality is. They're missing the rest of the journey oftentimes because they're so focused on getting on the end goal of orgasm or release. Oftentimes people with this type will say, well, what if it's all good, we're having an orgasm like, you know, hey, it's good. Why, why explore out of this you know, realm? When their partner brings up that they want something more in the bedroom, everything else is too complex to them. And the amount of people who identified or said they identified, I shouldn't even use that phrasing, giving what, you know, trannies use that word. The people who are that type in the poll were 15%. Next is the kinky type. And like I said last week, I don't really like that word. I'd like to invent another word to describe this because this is not someone who wants to be caned until they're bloody or peed on. I mean, that's, that's pretty serious. If someone likes that type of stuff, I would, I would try to get some help in some regard because that, that is not, um, that's not normal. It's not, it's not healthy. It's not a good thing. So this is someone who's turned on by taboo. 
there are a couple of different kinds. So one is someone who likes the psychological uh, dynamics of like power, like power dynamics, which essentially you'll see that in many types of sexual exchanges. But for some people, that's what they really like is that that aspect. And the other one is more sensation based where it's about feeling, let's say, uh, rope or something like that on their skin because of the sensation that arises. And it's not necessarily what we think of as, quote, kink. It's about what's taboo for you. So like I said, it's those other things that are really degrading or physically damaging. I wouldn't put in that, that category. I think that's stuff that just the oives onlaid onto us via pornography because some people have been traumatized and abused and they have like a brain crossing and then they, they find those things arousing. So what's the shadow of the kinky side? The shadow is tied to the sense that what turns you on is taboo and you can feel shameful about it. Um, so then shame can come up as an emotion for them and it can prohibit them from fully enjoying their pleasure. An interesting piece is that the shame can be part of a turn on, but it could also be part of a shadow if it's inhibiting you. Asking yourself if I can or cannot do this, or you can't get an idea out of your head thinking if something is, quote, naughty. So then that could be an inhibitor to the turn on. And most people were not. This is the least common type. 9% of people define themselves as the kinky type. And then finally, the shape shifter. This is someone who is essentially every type. And the creator of this blueprint, like I had said prior, said that when we're born, we're all of these types. We're sensual, we're energetic, we're sexual, we're kinky. And then we lose these based on you know experience we have typically adverse experience or programming or pogromming as I like to call it. So the shapeshifter, 29% of people said they were a shapeshifter. I mentioned in the chat that I thought I was a shapeshifter. The shapeshifter type is someone who is turned on by all of these things. It's a superpower. Um, the superpower of a shapeshifter that can shapeshift to be um, basically to meld with anyone else's style. So you have versatility, right? So I guess it would probably be easier to enjoy yourself in this intimate level of things if you were the shapeshifter because you wouldn't be completely bummed or, you know, frigid if you didn't fit with the blueprint of your partner, right? Just something to think about. And what's the shadow? The shadow is that um, they feel like they're too much. Someone in the past usually said something like, um, why can't you just be satisfied with this? The shapeshifter is the more, more, more type of person. I often find the shapeshifter are starving because they're shapeshifting to please other people and not being fed themselves. So that could be kind of the shadow of having this uh, erotic versatility would be not enough focus on the self and to pleasing for to people pleasing for other people. So very interesting. Um, and maybe this can explain a little bit why some people just seem to have more of uh, a chemistry or an affinity or a melding when it comes to sharing this type of intimacy. And I was actually recently watching this show. It was a, you know, a little degenerate, I guess. Um, it was a Netflix show that featured this, this woman who created the erotic blueprint. It's called Sex, Love, and Goop. So it was that Oive Gwyneth Paltrow, who, was, who could be a trainee. I don't know. I, these days, you just got to take the little things from everything that you watch Hopefully stay away from the really, really, you know, pro programming type of stuff that's, you know, really harsh. But you got to take little things from where you can. But in this show, 
it showed that once these people were able to, these couples were able to find out the other type, it opened up a whole new doorway, a doorway out of mundane for a lot of them, especially if they had been together for a while. And I've heard many people say that after a while, the relationship starts to get, you know, mundane and people stop caring about what they look like. I mean, that's kind of part of the trans agenda. If you think about it, we're talking about this from a real deep panoramic perspective, all of these things from our own intimate relationships to the TS agenda, right? They could all be worked on essentially. So yeah, these people learned the blueprint of their partner and then they kind of were like, wow, like we have a whole other side that we, you know, I've known this person for years and I just didn't know that there was this other piece, especially there was one couple who was looking to get divorced. And of course, since it was Netflix, you know, there were same sex couples, there were interracial couples. I mean, what are you going to do? Right. I mean, I, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not a promoter of any of that. Um, but this is, this is how they show us things. And Oh God, the, the TS language or the quote gender language in this thing was, was really, it's as a woman, it's really hard to listen to people just calling women, um, people with vulvas or, you know, menstruators or uterus havers. Like that is just talk about, you know, disembodiment. I mean, wow. Right. I mean, how can you really express yourself, you know, in that sensual way, if you don't even know like what sex you are? I mean, it's pretty, pretty mind ogling, but yeah, those are the erotic blueprints. There are a couple of quizzes online that I think you can take to figure out which one you are, if you are desirous of doing such, but interesting information for people to know. And it's cool to find out your spouses, if you have a mate, to find out which one they are. Maybe you'll connect with being the same primary type, and then your underlying type will be different, right? But yeah, very, very interesting. And of course, the I believe it's the number one cause of divorce. And, and by divorce, I'm not limiting that to just legal marriage, because you can be with someone who you've never been legally married to, and it's more of a quote marriage than someone who you are legally married to. I think people who get legally married to to just get um, a green card, right? I mean, that still happens. There's many reasons why maybe an arranged marriage, you know, there's many, many, many reasons. But the number one cause of divorce is infidelity. And I think finance sometimes also comes into play. Finances, or at least that's something that people tend to fight about within the context of a relationship. But infidelity is a number one cause of divorce. And I mean, of course, if if people aren't connecting sexually with their partner, of course, infidelity is the number one cause of divorce. It makes total and complete sense, right? Let's take a gander at the chat. Okay. So here's a little bit about relationships. Pretty interesting information about how marriages started out in their historical context and how different it is nowadays with the divorce rate, I don't think it's ever been as high as it is right now. So it's only since the Middle Ages that romantic love has actually been the basis for marriage at all. So that's an interesting thing to think about. So the connotation of marriage being equated with love is a, it's not something that's the original definition, if you will. Nowadays, of course, many people do get married for love. Of course, some probably don't. That's unfortunate. 
Prior to that, marriages were arranged for financial and social reasons. You might never have met the person you were, you were to marry prior to walking down the aisle. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Love was sometimes a happy accident, but it was not an exception, or expectation rather. A divorce rate has doubled since the 1960, whilst the marriage rate has declined 50% since 1970. So even that half as many people are getting married than they did 50 plus years ago, the divorce rate has doubled in 60 years. That's pretty intense. A full 70, 47 rather, percent of adults are unmarried today. Of this group, 40% have been married, have been married, have been married before and are currently single, and 60% have never married. The chance of a woman being a single mom is 50%, and one in three kids are being raised without a father. Of this group, only a third receive child support. 50% of singles have not had a date in two years. And the stats I'm reading are from a book that's 2016. So I would argue to venture that these stats are even higher than they are right here. And that, you know, today, current day, six years later. And yet women do not feel whole oftentimes unless we are in a relationship. As for the couples who stay married, the stats are equally disheartening. 20% of couples have sex 10 times a year or less. When it comes to sex drive, 30% of men and 50% of women report having none. When we do have sex, men have orgasms 75% of the time, whilst women only 29% of the time. Perhaps unsurprisingly, infidelity is the number one cause of divorce. And like I said last week on the broadcast that not having common interests was not a reason why people split up. So just interesting to know these types of stats. If someone's in a relationship, if someone's looking for a mate, I think, and I do believe that there are still good prospects out there if someone is looking for a mate. And even if someone's been having trouble in their relationship in this milieu, it doesn't mean that it has to be over. Maybe you just need to reconnect with yourself and reconnect with your mate and and remember what it felt like to to feel alive, essentially, right? And I think part of that trans agenda is having our energy in, in multiple ways, not, not just our sexual energy, that's our creative energy. And if we're not using it for, you know, actual um, intimacy in that, in that milieu, we can be using it for other things as well. But when we have our energies balanced, I think we're less likely to fall into a trance state from what we see in the outward world, but also we're less likely to fall into a trance state or kind of a groundhog day uh, lifestyle within the confines of our personal life. So it goes a long way. So I think we will take a little song break right now, then we're kind of going to come back and we're going to talk about a little bit more about relationships, but also a little bit about some of the other things like the, the Ajna Chakra and all of that good stuff. So I am Tabitha, you are listening to White Wellness Radio. This is The Trance Agenda. We'll be right back after this song.
Welcome back to the broadcast. That was Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule this, the World, back in 1985. And I am your host, Tabitha. You are listening to White Wellness Radio, The Trance Agenda. So before the break, we were talking a little bit about relationships and um, erotic blueprints and how knowing your partner's uh, style of intimacy can kind of help create that glue in a relationship. And just in general, relationship in general, whether it be you know, romantic or intimate or however else, it's a co-creation. It, it always is, especially if it's, if it's intimate. And building true wealth together means deeply connecting. That's true of with your mate, with your friends, you know, your, your, your outward folk, your family. That is the true wealth. It's the deep connection. And that is what Big Z looks to, um, to basically kind of, you know, cut people down, get deracinate people on a deep, deep, deep level. That's, of course, the game. That's why they'll never give away the roots of the game. And I always like to get to the root or the radix when I'm talking about anything. Um, because how can we really see it for what it is if we don't get to the root? And two things that bother me about the whole root of the trance agenda, everything out there just being totally zio, 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 zagi, is two things that really only racialists really get. The first one is what I had mentioned previously on this show and in the prior show and also a bit on the Telegram channels is that the root of the transhumanist movement is monogenist, which is out of Africa, of course. What the um, mentally ill, uh, you know, academics call, quote, scientific race racism, that just means racialism. Whenever you hear that word, just know that that's what that means. They've been using this phrase, I think, since maybe my days in college, because even then, even in the, you know, the early 2000s, it was still zoggy. It was still zoggy. But now it's zoggy. It's gotten, oh, it's gotten zoggy. So that's the one thing that shows that some people can't get to the root. Some people are fine um, going after everything, but they don't touch the race or this Gexus thing. And they're both, of course, deeply intertwined. And the other thing is when people refer to the regime as techno-fascism. It's definitely not techno-fascism, I can um, assure you of that. It is techno-talmudicism, but a lot of people who utilize the phrase techno-fascism, they are not racialists and they are not aware of the world's foremost problem, as Henry Ford put it. So they think it's techno-fascism, that um, this is the Fourth Reich, that it's a combination of using technology or transhumanism, and that's blended with fascism. And here's what Wikipedia or Wiktionary says about um, the etymology of the word fascism. From the Italian fascismo, meaning fascio, faces, bundle, or group, with direct reference to Benito Mussolini's fasci dei combattimento, the fight clubs, from the Latin fascis, bundle of axes and rods, carried before the magistrates of the ancient Roman Republic as representative of their power of life and death, originally with exclusive reference to fascist Italy, which was used, which used the fascist as an emblem, later broadened to describe all the axis powers of World War II, of course, and subsequently used as a general term of opprobrium in English and international political discourse. So that's the etymology of the term fascism. 
And they're saying, this is the most mind-seeing aspect of it, that the definition, that's just the etymology of what I read going back to, you know, the Italian, the Italian meaning, that, it, 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 that fascism is any right-wing authoritarian nationalist ideology characterized by centralized totalitarian governance, strong regimentation of the economy and of society, and repression of criticism of opposition. Well, we do have some of those. We do have totalitarian, the desire for Big Z to have totalitarian governance and a strong regimentation of economic, of the economy inside. They're trying for those things, and they're trying for a repression of criticism or opposition. This is a definition from 1922, so 100 years ago. But it is not a nationalist ideology, what is going on uh, in this world uh, or in this country. Clearly not. Uh, it's definitely not right-wing. And I wouldn't even say it's authoritarian. Maybe, maybe somewhat, maybe somewhat. But I think if anything, the Zogbots actually reinforce the authoritarianism more than the actual system shitstem does, which is kind of, I don't know if that's sad or funny, but it's almost like they've created this system where the people who were the biggest Zogbots and the biggest slaves will do all of the work, just how they, you know, they would call them, you know, useful idiots. So that's really what I think, it, you know, it is. It's definitely not a nationalistic ideology. So what does this do, essentially, when we hear the phrase, the system is techno-fascist? It gets thrown around, of course, by people who are not familiar, or not, not familiar, not aware of the truth of racial realism, right? All this does is reinforce the Nazi narrative, the white supremacy narrative, along with the holla hoax, and doesn't get to the racialist root, right? So of course, it would behoove the Skeksis system to allow it to be out there that the agenda is techno-fascism. It's techno-Talmudism. That's what it is, not techno-fascism. I mean, would we really want a fascist regime in general? No, I don't think we would, but I think techno-Talmudicism is, is far less savory than techno-fascism. We really want a radical centrist perspective. We want a holistic, racialistic um, view. That would really be behoove, that would behoove every, every uh, country in the world, obviously. Maybe not the, the Dune Kuhn ones that are so removed from reality and they're so misogynistic and just so insane maybe not for them but for any you know country that's you know quote primitive or desirous of more of a primal thought processes they would all benefit from that that's the greatest thing about that kind of i don't even know if we should use the word national socialism anymore as an as an idea of what we want for the future and for the current because that kind of referred to a, a certain specific time in, in history, albeit glorious in many ways, but we need something different than that. That system I don't think is really going to work 100% anywhere in the world. We have to add our own little stamp on it to make it modern and to also account for a place like America where we're we're, you know, mutts, if you will. I don't really like that word, but we have, we have a different, it's a different situation in America than it is in, in other parts of, of, you know, white, the white world. But we do not have a techno-fascist system. We have a techno-Talmudic system. It's a blending of technology, mostly nefarious technology, transhumanism, trans-agenda, 
mixed with Talmudicism. I don't have to really go into detail what Talmudicism is. That is the system that we have. So, of course, when someone's exposing LGBTQIAV+, exposing a lot of things are very, very important. Mind you, extre extremely important. But as long as we believe it's something like techno-fascism and not techno-Talmudism, we will not go back to the root, going back to the beginning of the show, talking about monogenism. Now, what is that word? Maybe you're not familiar with what that word means. Monogenism is out of Africa. It's the belief that we all ascended from a, um, a black, a Negro woman in Africa. That's the story. I, for me, I don't believe it personally. Um, I never believed it. It's not my type of thing to believe. So that's what they want us to believe. And of course, that kind of flows into many of the things we've seen throughout history, even going back before we were kind of in this cybernetic you know, tech time in history, which I guess we've essentially been in since late 70s, early 80s, but now we're really in it. So maybe you've seen these memes or these posters where they show, quote, evolution. Of course, we know evolution is a hollow hoax because out of Africa is a hollow hoax. So, of course, it's a hollow hoax. And I don't believe in creationism because that's an Abrahamic belief system. I have my own belief, which is polygenist. It's a theory of human origins, which posits that the view of the human races are of different origins. This is in opposition to monogenism. I tried to post something the other day on Instagram about this. And they wouldn't even allow me to post it. I tried three or four, maybe five times utilizing different language. They wouldn't post it. So I have a feeling that I probably already have a ban or uh, a, like a strike on my account. Didn't get anything, you know, with saying that I had that. But they, uh, they um, didn't want me to post that. So I wasn't able to post it. But going back to what I'm talking about with polygenism, how it works, um, versus monogenism, polygenism is the, can expose why the root of the TS agenda is monogenist and why it isn't techno-fascist and why it is techno-Talmudic. So many of you, of course, have seen those memes where it shows like a chimp or something, like a primate, and then it shows the body, you know, going through like all these incarnations until it becomes like a modern human. And then after the modern human, you see like a cyborg, like, like a Robocop or a um, a terminator right so for a long time they have been seeding society that we're gonna go from monkey to man and by man i mean you know human woman man we're gonna go from monkey to man to alien or to robot or to cyborg right so that is why the monogenist or monogenism which most people don't know that word they know out of africa mm -hmm. that's why monogenism is the root of the transsexual and transhumanist and white genocide agenda I have to make that clear as well because of course that's what all this is leading to right in one way or another so that's the thing that the people who think it's techno-fascist are not able to comprehend um expose of course exposing this will get you banned everywhere i know that really well right but this is the root so it can't be techno-fascist if it's techno-fascist that means it's monogenist, and it's not. It's polygenist. That's those are our roots. So we have to accept fake roots. We have to be in the trance to basically accept any aspect of their agenda. This is why the race thing is so important because it ties to everything else. That's why sometimes people who are against the transsexual agenda, they get called racist because if you go deep enough, it exposes everything. Right. Things like this, that 
need to be exposed. And that was one of the things on this credo. I made this Aryan credo up last week and I posted it on Telegram. It's been shared all around. It's gotten like over 800 uh, views, which is you know, pretty, pretty good for, you know, having small channels like I do. I think a small channel is like, I would say anything under 3000 uh, followers, which, which mine are. But one of the things, one of the bullet points on this Aryan credo was polygenism. I know that many of us or probably all of us listening know that out of Africa is a hollow hoax, but I'm just trying to um, decipher and, and um, explain that it's so important to understand that this whole TS agenda is based on their perception of reality, their perception that we came from Africa, their perception that germs cause disease. There's no way making heads or tails of any of their narratives because they're a lie from the start. So yeah, a little bit there. And of course, it's a lie from the start, but it, it, it villainizes, um, it villainizes white racialists. It reinforces the, you know, the Nazi narrative. We know that it reinforces, quote, white supremacy. It reinforces the hollow hoax and never gets to the racialist root. So see how it all works together. And if someone doesn't see that aspect or that that part of the whole puzzle, then I have to ask, um, what is up with that person's Ajna chakra? What is going on with that, right? If we're not able to, to figure that aspect out. So that brings me to the next topic of today's broadcast, the trans agenda. We are going to talk about the Ajna chakra, the third eye. I like what uh, Bill Hicks said about the third eye many years ago in one of his stand-up routines. He said that uh, Talmud vision, he didn't call it, Talmud vision, he called it television. But anyway, he said that television is like spray paint to the third eye. I would say that all of the media, because of course, you know, when he was saying that this was the, the early 90s, so things were a little bit different in the media department, but I would definitely expand his definition to include a lot of internet culture and a lot of internet things in general, especially anti-social media. Let's take a Gandhi at the chat. We have some uh, comments coming in. 6-4 Arian is saying, I think the out of Africa theory has already been proven false. Yeah, it has been proven false even in mainstream um, media. But of course, they're really not going to get to the root and tell us like how different we both are. We don't, not we both, we all are from other, other races. I think that's really what I would like to see more, even if people know that that piece is not true. They may know that, but they may not know just how different the races are, because that's that's the information that's pretty sensitive. Like imagine telling the average, not even the average lib shit, imagine telling just the average person that, you know, the skeletal structure of blacks and whites was completely different, that blacks had um, a different color, you know, muscles, right? Different color ligaments. That's, that's something that I don't even think maybe a lot of conservatives would want to hear. So it really goes a lot deeper. And I'm not saying any of this stuff to denigrate anybody. It's, it's never like that. It's only to get the truth out so we can understand how deep these agendas go and how we can optimize and spiritualize ourselves whilst we exist in this world. Just a guy is saying, been proven false many times, but they still push it in school and media anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like how germ theory was proven false, like what, a century ago? When Pasteur, Louis Pasteur was on his deathbed, and he said in, in French, the terrain is everything, the microbe is nothing, basically 
proving on his deathbed that, uh, you know, Antoine um, Beauchamp was was correct, that the terrain was responsible for whether a person was going to become ill or not. So, you know, th oftentimes the truth is out there, but as just a guy says very, very clearly, they still push it in school and media anyway. So if a lot of people's, quote, education is coming from school and media, it doesn't matter. I mean, the average person, I'm shocked by like, I've known some people throughout my life who have literally not owned any books or owned maybe like 10 books. I mean, I was, I thought it was kind of weird personally, you know? I mean, there's a lot of information, even with the, you know, the internet and the computer, there's a lot of stuff that we can only find in books. Oftentimes when I'm doing these broadcasts, I'm using some internet resources, of course, but a lot of the information that I'm providing on these shows is coming from books. It's coming from books that aren't so easy to get or aren't typically advertised either because this is the truth. You know, it's still good information. So that's why I really love using books for the broadcast. I've actually already used one book for the broadcast and I'm using one again and I think I might be using even another one. So books are really where it's at. My mom used to say to me, Epiphany is saying, do your own research. Yeah, and it's it's pretty powerful to be able to do your own research and find out things. And it also keeps a person curious. How great is it to be kept curious, right? Especially in a, in a day and age when so many people are so bored and boring consequentially. So let's talk about the fifth chakra. This is uh, really great stuff. So it's known as, no, I'm sorry, the sixth chakra. Excuse me, that was last week. We're up to six already, so last week is gonna next week is gonna be our, our last show on this. Well, on, on this little aspect, we'll be doing more shows in the future, obviously. Okay, so this is the sixth chakra. Okay, so the element is light, the color is indigo, it's like that blue-green. And something I've said before on many shows, but I will say it again. Notice how that rainbow flag, the one they use for transsexualism now, the LGBTP flag, QIAV+, whatever they're calling it. Notice how that flag, not the one that's merged with BLM, but the class or the transsexual agenda, the classic LGBTP flag. Notice how there is no indigo color. Remember the, the old adage we used to learn in the public fooling system, Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, seven colors for the rainbow. The indigo is kept out of that flag and the indigo represents the third eye. Ah, makes a lot of sense. This is why we live in a trance agenda. That's why everything out there is to put us into a trance. So color is indigo, element is light, Sanskrit name is Ajna, A-J-N-A, to perceive and command. Location, forehead, brow, carotid plexus, the third eye. The purpose, pattern and recognition. Identity is archetypal. Issues, image, intuition, imagination, visualization, insight, dreams, and vision. Orientation, self-reflection. Demon, illusion. Developmental stage, adolescence. Developmental task, establishment of personal identity, ability to perceive patterns. Basic rights, the right to see. Kind of a big thing. I mean, do we have the right to see what we're actually really seeing these days? Or is our sight being polluted by all of these images and, and false stories, false narratives? 
So when a person has a balanced sixth chakra or Ajna chakra, what are some characteristics of this? They're intuitive, they're perceptive, they're imaginative, their memory is good, able to access and remember dreams, able to think symbolically, able to visualize. Traumas and abuses of the Ajna chakra. What you see doesn't go with what you're told. Invalidation of intuition and psychic occurrences. An ugly or frightening environment, war zone or violence. So here are some ways it will manifest. It can manifest as a deficiency or an excess, just like we talk about in TCM, when someone can have a deficiency of yin, deficiency of yang, or an excess of those, or an excess of, of heat, of wind, of cold, etc., of dampness. So when the Ajna chakra is deficient, this is how it shows. Insensitivity, poor vision, poor memory, difficulty seeing future or imagining alternatives, Lack of imagination, difficulty visualizing, can't remember dreams, denial, cannot see what's going on, monopolarized, one true white, right and only way. And leading, reading those last two ones, denial, can't see what's going on, monopolarized, one true right and only way, that sounds like someone who would have like transsexual tunnel vision, right? Cannot actually see what's going on and thinks that this is the right and only way. This could also be true of anyone who's believing in Oyed AI, who's believing in um, anti-racialism, who's believing in any of these, um, these miasmas that exist. And what are excesses of the Ajna Chakra? Hallucinations, delusions, that's a big one for LGBTP, delusions, right? Obsessions, difficulty concentrating, and nightmares. And how does this uh, malfunction physically? Headaches and vision problems. Healing practices to heal the Ajna Chakra. Create visual art, visual stimulation, meditation, psychotherapy, coloring and drawing and art therapy, working with memory, connecting image with feeling, dream work, hypnosis, guided visualizations, past life regression therapy affirmations. I see all things in clarity. I am open to the wisdom within. I can manifest my vision. Pretty interesting. Pretty interesting and good stuff. And I was doing something also where I was also mentioning a mantra that I found somewhere else. So another affirmation or mantra that one could use for the Ajna or the third eye chakra is not just the ones that we just went through, about opening wisdom, seeing things in clarity, and manifesting vision. You could also say, I let go of all limiting ideas and beliefs. And anything that puts you in a trance is of limiting ideas and beliefs, right? So it all works together. Everything is, is always working together. Or it's working in the opposite direction to not work together and to create degeneration. And that's, you know, either you're regeneration, regenerating or you're degenerating. There's really only one. There can only really be one of those things. But a little bit about the Ajna Chakra right there, the third eye. And good topic to talk about as we're talking about the things that put people into a trance. And yowza, there are so many things these days. It's almost like everything out there 
comes should come with a warning label, right? I mean, there's so much discernment to be had for literally everything. Sometimes you just know in your bones that something is mind-zoggling, but sometimes it takes a little bit more to figure it out. So those are some little bullet points right there about the Ajna Chakra. And it's also been said many times that, you know, certain foods like, you know, things like fluoride and any type of heavy metal is obviously going to hurt any glands in your body, especially if your mineral load is low. So that's something to definitely think about too, possibly adding in a, a mineral supplement. Always, always something nice to have because our food is good for minerals, but sometimes we need an extra, an extra boost to be getting a little, a little bit more. And since we live in such a world that there are a lot of toxins, unfortunately, and the soil is not as mineralized uh, deeply as it, as it used to be, maybe in certain cases where people are doing, you know, really kind of like hyper regenerative farming, but most of us who are getting our food, you know, even the organic food, it's not going to be as mineral rich that as it could have been back in the day, like in the forties when broccoli was actually a source of copper. It really can't be said anymore. I think there are more delicious ways in your diet to get copper than to eat broccoli. I do like, you know, bee pollen or liver or, you know, shellfish or something like that. Mollusks, mollusks and uh, bivalves. But yeah, there's a lot to be said for the things that you can do to open up your Ajna Chakra from kind of more of a, you know, spiritual way and, you know, doing kind of like more of the physical type of work. But Diet always plays a role in in everything. I know sometimes in GNM they'll say they don't want to assign too much weight to to diet, but I think it could actually go a long way to kind of creating even that mentality or reality. And a lot of the things that we just think are, you know, normal growing pains are really just signs of lodged trauma in the body, of course, but also signs of, of uh, mineral depletion. For sure. And you don't just have to be like a, a hardcore drug addict in your past to have mineral depletion. This could happen to anybody. So let's take a gander at the chat. Okay. So that was a little bit about the third eye and the Ajna Chakra. And let's see, I want to talk a little bit. I had a question and answer from one of the one of the listeners. I wanted to take a moment to talk about this right now. I had someone message me, I think using the, the Podbean comments and asking a question. Oh, I had someone leave kind of a snarly comment too. This was on the show that I did for racial hygiene and creating healthy babies. I, I thought it was a pretty good topic for a show. And the person said that my semi-intellectual rantings are more poisonous than anything I have ever experienced. Okay, that's fine for me. Um, probably someone who, you know, thinks that Bill Gates is a eugenicist. So, ah, mind-zoggling stuff. Okay, so someone had a question. A fellow who goes by Benson Shrimp. Interesting name. So he had a question about losing body fat. What would someone do if they had a decent amount of body fat and wanted to lose and use as much as possible? Would fasting be a good idea? Like say a 48 hour fast every so often whilst exercising and drinking plenty of water. I just want your thoughts on that. I'm assuming this is a 
guy. Um, but even so, I guess for, for a woman, it's definitely not um, good to do the fasting, especially during the childbearing years, because our, our hormones are very sensitive. But I'm going to assume you're a man, so I'm going to go with that. Uh, I don't really favor it too much for men either. I think men can handle it a bit a bit better because your hormonal profile is, you know, testosterone up in the morning, hence morning wood, and then it goes down as the day goes on. And as men get older, it typically diminishes. Sometimes now, sadly, it's diminishing for a lot of young men because of the trance agenda. But uh, I don't really recommend fasting. I recommend more that someone finds out what foods work for them and then find out a way to consume those foods because oftentimes it's not just about calories in and calories out when it comes to weight loss that's a very kind of hmm, western kind of allopathic way of doing it and we really need nutrients and minerals and vitamins to support having enough muscle and shedding body fat so with the fasting you may be able to get rid of some pounds in the beginning, but it's a buy now, pay later situation because you will feel probably pretty good if you're running on adrenaline, which is a stress hormone. And like I said, you can take off some pounds, but the body can only do that for oh so long. And then what unfortunately happens many times is the person packs back on the weight and possibly even then some. And since they've gone that whole time without eating, they're ravenous and they want to eat foods that typically tend to be nutrient dense, but albeit calorically dense as well. And they may even overdo it with those foods. And um, like I said, put on pounds because they've deprived themselves of nutrients. So what I would do if let's say you were a client of mine and you were looking to put on muscle and get rid of some body fat, I would find out your TCM diagnosis by doing my own diagnostic tools. I don't use any um, like computerized diagnostics. I do it all intuitively like people used to do like a lot of years ago. And people do send me their their blood work and, you know, things like that. And, you know, sometimes I can be of assistance or, you know, what food allergies they have or what their vitamin and mineral levels are. But what I do is I intuit it. I read someone's symptoms. And if they're a woman, I read their period. And uh, I also find out what they're eating and what their emotional patterns are. And I mix that with dramatic new medicine because traditional Chinese medicine and dramatic new medicine are extremely complementary. And if you know both of them, it's really helpful to be able to really give someone a, you know, a, a working thing to work with. So I would find out what your constitution was and that I would design a regime for you based on that so you could lose weight and build muscle, but it would include regular meals. I wouldn't really be um, promoting a lot of fasting. And the type of food that I would be promoting to you would be a diet that would be uh, dense with minerals and vitamins, as well as having adequate gentle to digest carbohydrates, a little bit of saturated fat, um, adequate protein, and meals that are tasty, that appeal to your constitution, that work for your body right now, and also are racially appetizing and appropriate. So that would be my answer for you. I don't, like I said, I think the fasting is a quick fix. You may, like I said, see results, but it might be a backpedaling kind of buy now, pay later situation. You're, you're much better off just getting an idea of how to pers pers proceed and getting an idea of like what is best for you to eat what supplements, if any, are good to take. This is why it's nice to work with someone. And typically, if I am doing this with someone, it depends what their needs are. But I like to work with someone for at least three sessions, possibly more, 
typically more if someone needs ongoing support. But if someone's just looking for like a dietary regime, it takes a couple of sessions to kind of get there. They're feral for it, but I would approach it more by seeing the nourishment and uh, sustenance that food can beautifully offer us and use that to build my body so my body will want to put on muscle and want to um, shed uh, fat. So that would be the answer that I would, I would give for you. I hope that is helpful. All right, moving right along on the broadcast. Let's see, 6-4 Aaron has a little bit of advice as well. Stop eating shit food. Eat clean, healthy food and lift weights and stay committed works every time. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was pretty much the, the succinct, you know, way of saying what I just pretty much said. But yeah, pretty much the same thing. Eat well, don't eat shit, eat clean and healthy. Keep a schedule of clean and healthy food. Sometimes it's nice to do your food prep on one day of the week. You have hard boiled eggs and you have all your stuff like taken care of. Yeah, and lift and, and stretch and get some sun. Also, the whole genital sunning thing, which I know some people are kind of like thinking it's actually just satire. It's not satire. I was actually doing yoni sunning before I started the broadcast, so it's definitely not satire. Um, and that can boost testosterone, I think, by, what, 200% getting, um, you know, midday sun on your on your testicles or scrotum. So for this fellow who asked the question, Maybe he should be sunning his scrotum because then your te your testosterone would go up and then you'd be uh, less likely to, to hang on to weight. So a little bit of something there. Or I guess you could just lift weights um, nude in the sun too. You could also do that. A lot of opportunities here. These things are free too. Remember that. Uh, they promote so many things to us. Take this, take that, you know. It's a hoax. Like all this good stuff to do. You just got to know it, but it's, it's free. Or very low cost. So a little bit there about... My thoughts on uh, fasting and weight loss. And if it was for a woman, I'd essentially give the same advice for uh, a woman. Um, but our bodies just, since we are cyclical and men are more like linear, it's, it's really harder for us to do the fasting. And even like skipping a meal can be hard for ladies, especially during the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. The menstrual cycle, of course, isn't just the period. That's the part that we, we know because we have proof. But the menstrual cycle has four phases. And during the luteal phase, which is the phase after ovulation, before the bleed starts, that's the phase when we're more sensitive to comments, we're more sensitive to alcohol, to caffeine, to sugar, to skipping a meal, to not getting enough protein with breakfast, you know, to getting a crusty night's sleep. So like that's the time during what they call like typically the PMS time, right? That's one of the words they use to describe it. So for women, it's a no, especially, um, like I said, even skipping a meal during the luteal phase can be really hard for women. So definitely this whole fasting thing, I think, is built on the scarcity culture, which is exactly what the Talmudicists want us to think. Everything is scarce, right? When essentially we, the opposite is true. We live in a world of abundance, but... The Zio Sludge Trance wants us to think that everything is scarce. It's a hoax. All right, so now I wanted to share uh, a little bit about damp heat or dampness, which is a TCM thing. It's a TCM uh, categorization of diagnosis. And Epiphany is saying, I do very well with one meal a day, but I'm in the late stage of perimenopause. For women who are in that stage where they're approaching uh, the change into the crone years, 
they are not going to be as uh, hormonally sensitive as women who are in the childbearing year. So yes, women who are at that phase or nearing that phase can do a little less, especially less carbohydrates. But for women, uh, when they're in the childbearing years, it's it's harder because like when we're still in that cycle, even after we go past, um, you know, past that phase into the crone years, but just we're more sensitive when we have the active surge of hormones in our body. I hope that makes sense for everybody. 6-4 Arian is saying, I must opinion if it's all about ditching the stress for women to lose weight. I think that's a huge part of it because it's been said that I think with women like 90% of uh, dis-ease is caused by emotional stress and women tend to be more sensitive to stress, especially during that luteal phase where, like I said, a skipped meal, too many drinks, um, a comment, it could be anything could, could set somebody off at that point during the, um, during the cycle. And Epiphany is saying stress absolutely causes weight gain. Oh yeah, I think stress is stress is worse than McDonald's. I mean, I'm not advocating McDonald's, certainly. I, I haven't eaten there since, I don't know, the 90s or something. But stress is the worst. Oftentimes we have to find ways to reframe things. We have to take ourselves personally out of a situation, realize other people are mentally ill. That's a hard one sometimes. Um, but those are the things that really, you know, stress is, at the end of the day, I'm not sure if stress is necessarily a choice, but I think the choice to get, there is a choice to get out of it. Your body might be so reactive to it because there's something that needs a deeper fix and people almost feel like they can't get out of that loop, which is, which is terrible. I mean, there have been times in my life in the past where I, I felt at certain points I was stuck in that not because of the zao sludge stuff more on like a, a personal level but there's a lot of things you can do to get yourself out of it uh, there's really no one secret it's like people who like lose a ton of weight or you know whatever gain a ton of muscle like everyone's going to have their own little program to to do it to get to that point but the basics that six four arian mentioned you know eating good lifting keeping regular commitment to things that's what it, that's what works. It's keeping that regularity of one's one's thing because people are really gung ho sometimes in the beginning of something, and then they lose gusto and then things fall apart. So having that stability is really important. So it's a, it's a network of things. But yeah, if someone is like totally stressed, mm -mm, definitely. That's going to be hard, even if they're, you know, doing pranayama and, you know, sunning their genitals and, you know, eating really good. I mean, it's going to be harder to be depressed when you have a lot of good habits. That's something, too. Like if someone's depressed, oftentimes they focus on what's so bad. It's better just to add in the healthy things as opposed to dwelling on all the things that suck. Add in the good habits and then you'll have less things in your life that suck. Right. It works. It works pretty easily like that. So let's talk a little bit about um, one of many Chinese diagnoses, but I'm going to talk about this one. I think I've talked a little bit about it in the past, but I want to talk about it again because I think it is very applicable to um, Westerners, given the diets that we're told to eat, you know, currently and also just historically speaking. And I think it's something that everyone can benefit from hearing about, because even if we don't necessarily have this as our TCM Diagnoses. I don't even really like that word diagnosis or diagnoses because it kind of 
brings up allopathic, like, you know, it conjures up allopathy for me. But nevertheless, sometimes it's good to have a, a set amount of symptoms add up to a thing. So, of course, in Germanic medicine, they would say these symptoms are part of the healing phase. You're going through this emotional crisis, and this is what set it off. This is the reason. Excellent, valuable information. In TCM, they will tell you that because of the symptoms you're experiencing, this is how it's affecting the body, and they'll use words like damp. They'll use words like cold, heat, wind, stagnation, um, deficiency, excess, etc. So that's how I like to work with people when I'm working with them. I get their Germanic New Medicine emotional framework for things, which is really, really important to understand emotionally why someone's dealing with something. Every disease has an emotional component, by the way, especially, I think, for, for women, because that's, that's more of the domain that we're in. Uh, but I would say every, every, every disease uh, for, for both sexes definitely has an emotional component. And then when you look at it from a TCM perspective, you can see what organs it's actually affecting, right? So that's really what I like to do when I'm finding out information for others. And of course, I take into um, consideration blood type, ethnicity, childhood diet, um, preferences, things like that, you know, current goals and needs. So it's not just a a one-size-fits-all program, but I wanted to talk a little bit about one of these TCM diagnoses, which is called dampness. And I think this is something, like I said, that can be relatable, especially in the context of traditional Western food or modern Western food, the diet of commerce, which, you know, Dr. Weston A. Price would call it that. So here's a bit about dampness, reducing dampness with nutrition. So there are some foods that will increase what's known as dampness in the body. There are also foods that will decrease dampness in the body. And you may say, what the hell is dampness, right? I know it's kind of a concept that's kind of foreign to us from hearing it, hearing that word, but how can you tell if you're too damp? So first, what is dampness? It's a sticky, heavy feeling that weighs down the body and clogs and blocks the channels in the body. So, of course, that would mean the key, the prana, and the vril is not able to circulate. And when we have blockages or stagnations in the body, it could also cause anxiety, depression, etc. So dampness refers to water fluids that haven't been transformed properly. We blame the TCM spleen organ system, which is very involved with digestion, for, th for this because one of the functions of the spleen, key, energy, prana, vril, is to transform the fluids. A few things that can have a negative effect on the spleen are lack of exercise, worrying and overthinking, a shitty diet, aging, irregular eating and drinking, eating too many sweets and refined sugars, and eating too many fatty or fried foods, and eating too many cold or raw foods. And that just sounds like the Western diet in a nutshell, right? A shitty diet, eating things irregularly, drinking things irregularly, taking in too many sweets, taking in too many fatty and fried foods, taking in too many cold and raw foods, and overeating and hard-to-digest foods. Classic Western diet. On top of all of this, dampness is not internally generated, but is also externally contracted, which means if someone lives in a damp environment, they are more likely or have more propensity to be damp. What are some signs that you may be dealing with too much dampness? Weight gain, foggy head, 
loose stools, bloating, swelling in the body, frequent yeast infections or excess vaginal discharge for the ladies, feeling of heaviness in the body, nasal congestion, cough with phlegm, nausea, dizziness when you stand up, and thick, greasy tongue coating. So that fellow who asked before about losing weight, right, and fat loss, as you can see here, that being damp would contribute to weight gain, right? So maybe it's not that he's not eating enough or eating too little or, or eating too much or eating the, you know, not eating nutrient dense foods. Maybe that fellow is eating foods that are actually causing dampness in his body. And, you know, many of us don't know these things, right? We know that a certain food is a good source of protein. We know that it maybe has B vitamins, but we don't know the energetic quality of food. And since we Aryans have a sixth sense, right? We're not just sensoric beings from the five senses. Of course, we have that too. We have a sixth sense. So we need to use that and we need to create and select foods in our lives that energetically work for us. So how can we get rid of the excess dampness in the body? Eating warm cooked foods, avoiding too many raw and cold foods, moving your body daily and getting moderate exercise, limiting dairy intake. And yes, if you do have too much dampness, you don't want too much dairy. There is a thing, is a thing of taking in too much. You have to find your sweet spot for that and which ones work for you. Keep in mind that cow dairy is more damp than goat or sheep dairy and cold or frozen dairy is going to be more damp than room temperature dairy. That's why the Ayurvedics will gently warm milk and add a little bit of cardamom because cardamom is a warming spice. And when you take the milk and you gently warm it, you still can allow the bacteria to stay intact by doing that, by the way, but you make it less damp. So that's another aspect of food energetics. We pick the foods that work for our bodies based on our, our diagnostic material. And then we can take those foods and we can alchemize them to make them even more suitable for our bodies. And if you have what's called a kapha um, dosha, in Ayurveda, there are three doshas. Most people are a combo of three. There's the vata, which tends to be very lean, dry, can't sit still. There's the pitta, which typically is like the middle-sized body, puts on muscle easily, quick to anger, um, doesn't do too well with heat. And then you have the kapha, which is very slow moving, uh, typically a little overweight, and uh, they tend to be prone to what the TCM would call dampness. So that's why if you have the kapha body type, they typically in Ayurveda will only recommend goat milk and ghee. So you can see how we can tweak our system by energetically using the foods that work for us. Very, very different than just thinking about, you know, macros and stuff, which I think is, is really, especially you know, for a woman, it's a very masculinized view of looking at things. And not that that's a bad thing. Masculine and feminine are not either good or bad. But when that's the only way we're looking at something, we're missing that panoramic perspective of having both values of it. So of course, I don't discount that. But oftentimes, that's the dominant information that we're going to be getting, right? So a little bit, we talked about dairy, also having plenty of soups and stews and broths, which I like to enrich with gelatin, bloom gelatin, avoiding refined sugars and sweeteners, you know, do things like honey and maple syrup and fruit, 
limiting greasy deep fried foods. I mean, those are high in PUFA anyway. If you do do deep fried, do it at home very rarely and use coconut oil or leaf lard. Uh, adding ginger to teas and foods. Ginger can help dry dampness. Uh, limiting alcohol. Alcohol can be uh, dampening. And chewing your food well, because of course, if we want to digest our food well, and that, that involves using the spleen well, having a proper spleen function, we want to chew our food well. So a little bit there about dampness. And there's actually like three different types of dampness in TCM. There's the general dampness, which is associated with weakness of the spleen. This may manifest as tiredness, achy limbs, digestive weakness, um, kind of like a fuzzy head feeling. And then water dampness is when someone has edema and they retain water and they swell or become waterlogged. I think we're familiar with that. And then phlegm is the third type of dampness. This is when people have a sticky, a very sticky manifestation of dampness. And this is when organs will have, um, organs will, will be affected more and they will also be in combination with someone having uh, damp heat or damp cold and then phlegm or mucus will congeal or obstruct the functioning of particular organs because the person has damp heat or damp cold. Damp cold could occur from eating too many cold or raw foods. Damp heat can occur from eating like too many spicy foods or too many like warming spices. So as we can see, it, it works differently depending on um, the type. So it's very, it's very specified type of situation, how this, how this works. And the thing about this is nice is that even if someone is dealing with an ailment from an allopathic perspective or allopathetic perspective, two or three people, everybody is going to get a different treatment when you're looking at it through the TCM or the GNM perspective. You're not going to be getting the same treatment. Even if everyone has diabetes, there's going to be a different protocol because there's different types of diabetes and how it manifests from a TCM perspective. The allopathic perspective sees everybody as the same, right? Race is the same. Sex is the same. What's after that? They're going to erase age. And then we're getting into terrible territory of the worst thing in the world and the things that are in their, in their book, right? So it's, um, it's a slippery slope, that piece, but you really never get to the root of how something works via allopathy or even functional medicine because they don't understand these these deep idiosyncrasies that the ancient traditions do. So other foods that someone who is dealing with dampness may want to chill on, um, pork can be a bit much if you're if you run forward uh, run towards dampness. Uh, peanuts also can be one. Concentrated juices like orange juice and tomato. Uh, eating too much wheat or bread, uh, yeast, beer, and bananas. Those are all foods that if you're dealing with dampness, you may want to think about getting different foods, right? And are these foods bad? No. It's, these, are, these, are, these are normal, healthy, whole foods with ingredients. No, they're not bad. But maybe it would behoove a person who's dealing with dampness to kind of favor foods that will be cleansing, that will kind of you know, allow more flow in the body to break up the dampness. So drinking warm water and teas and things like that, right? Better than having cold drinks or coffees because that also can cause dampness in the body. 
Eating yellow and orange foods can help with dampness. Carrots, squash, parsnips, yams, are also really healing for the spleen, those foods right there. So we, as we could see, it's kind of a multifaceted um, approach to how we do things. And also bitter foods can also help clear damp. Uh, green vegetation, kale, mustard greens, dandelion, parsley. Uh, I like the Chinese greens like uh, yu choy and gailan, Chinese broccoli, uh, bok choy. Uh, celery is bitter. Citrus peels. These are all foods that can help reduce dampness. Turnips, radish, kohlrabi, asparagus. Also making sure you have uh, fiber in the diet. Fiber in the diet can be from properly prepared uh, grain and bean. It can also come from fruit and vegetables. I think beets are a really great way to get um, some fiber into the system. Squashes, soaked rice, fruits, I like things like that. Uh, rice is a really good food to help with uh, dampness. And of course, wheat can kind of incur dampness. Uh, add dookie beans or add zuki beans, tiny little bean that's used in uh, Asian cookery, good for the kidneys, can also help with dampness. And we said it again, I said it prior, but I'll mention it again, exercise. It's not always just about weight loss. And I think it's way better to not go into something about weight loss or, you know, this food is like, quote, healthy. How about just like, I'm doing this because it's good for me and it makes me feel good. I think it's a way better way of looking at things. So exercise moves your blood, moves your key, prana, thrill, helps the blood cleanse itself, stokes digestive fire, what the Vedics call Agni, and gives you more energy. So it's multifaceted. You want to move. You want to eat the good foods and you want to um, clear the dampness out by avoiding certain foods. And of course, you could also do acupuncture if that was appetizing to you. And you could also take some herbs. I'm not going to give recommendations on that because that would have to be blended specifically for your style of uh, dampness or diagnosis. But there are also herbs that one can get from a practitioner, which will also help to drain dampness from the body. But as you can see, keeping the blood healthy and clean, not just because of you don't want to have like, you know, circulatory problems as you get older and people tend to have slower flow. You want to keep the blood good from like a racial perspective too, right? So it always goes so deep, eating the good food, keeping a clean diet, you know, consistency, commitment, doing the exercises. And the long haul is that we keep our circulation good and we also keep our blood racially pure. And that's the best it can get great stuff. And that dampness information is, is helpful, um, depending on, you know, what your, what your thing is and how you need to approach that. So we got some questions right here in the chat. Six, four, Aaron is saying, um, so a half a gallon of raw milk per day is making me damp. I sweat all day long at work. Um, it would depend if you had other symptoms. Um, are you overweight? Do you feel like slow or sluggish? Um, are you tired? I mean, it really depends. Everyone's going to be different. So you're, it sounds like you keep, um, a physical pace, an intense physical pace during the day. So that possibly staves off dampness because you're moving, right? And I'm not sure exactly what your diet is, but everyone's going to be able to tolerate things differently, right? So it would depend on all of those things. I mean, if you feel good doing that, that's, you know, that's, that's your thing. But if you're feeling like, ah, eh, I think I'm running into kind of like, you know, I'm hitting a wall with what I'm doing, then maybe you got to, you know, adjust it. Right. And sometimes things work seasonally that don't work 
in other seasons. Sometimes they work for a few years, then you got to think about doing something else. But I'm thinking more and more as I'm going through more of this TCM work and kind of, you know, um, familiarizing myself with it more on a deep level, I'm realizing that a lot of these uh, popular, what they're calling these metabolic diets, they actually are causing damp heat because they're recommending people base their diets on a lot of the foods that we went over that actually cause damp heat. So unless we're seeing food from that panoramic everything, well, I'm saying food right now, we're seeing everything from that panoramic Aryan perspective, we have to take in the energetics of it. We have a sixth sense. We just have to hone it like the muscle that it is. Of course, many of us have had our sixth sense hijacked, right? I mean, anyone who got the OEDI vaccination, it's probably been totally hijacked, unfortunately. It's, these things are unfortunate, but we need to strengthen that uh, sensoric muscle of our sixth sense. And we can see things from the energetic perspective and we won't get deceived by the trans agenda. Epiphany is saying baby bok choy and garlic sauce with white rice is one of my favorite all-time foods. It's good. It's tasty. It's easy to eat. Um, I like both those two, but I think I would pick the gailan, the Chinese broccoli, as my number one, and the yu choy is my number two, and the baby bok choy is number three. But those are good. I like I like a lot of those those greens, which I'm seeing more and more at different um, stores. I much prefer those types of greens. They're so easy to eat. Anyway, that's what I like about those. So yeah, a little bit about dampness and... What I'll do for the Patreon Extra, I know I uh, forgot to put something up for last week, but for the Patreon Extra for this week's broadcast, I'm going to put up this list that tells you which foods resolve general dampness, dampness with water, and dampness with phlegm. So if anyone out there is dealing with the regular dampness, we talked about weakness of spleen, the water dampness is the edema dampness, and the phlegm dampness is someone that has a lot of phlegm or mucus. This will give you some ideas about how you can uh, clear that dampness from your body using food therapy as well as some herbs. But these are culinary herbs, you know, so like parsley and oregano and stuff like that. If you went to a practitioner, they would give you Chinese herbs that would clear dampness and whatever else uh, you personally had to clear. So a little bit there. A uh, different way of looking at food from more of that energetic perspective, but very, very valid nevertheless. So let's take a gander at my notes and see if I have anything much more for this show. We have about 10 minutes left right here. Went by pretty quick today. I've uh, talked about things that put us in the trance agenda. We talked about finding out your erotic blueprint so you can connect deeper with yourself or with your mate. We talked about some um, some relationship stats that were a little bit unsavory. We talked about how society is not techno-fascist, how it's techno-Talmudic. And then we talked a little bit about diet. We talked about um, why I wouldn't recommend fasting. And we talked about uh, damp heat, what the TCM modality calls damp heat. So looking through my notes, it looks like I've... I think that's all I have for uh, this week's broadcast. I'll be back again, of course, with uh, another broadcast next week. We'll be talking about the crown chakra and other assorted offerings on that broadcast. But I think I will end the broadcast today with a little uh, quote that I happened to see whilst I was uh, perusing Talmud Graham today. Let's see where it is. Um... 
Oh, actually, first, I should mention this. This is a, I'm not sure if everyone heard this. This is a little bit of current events, but I will, I will mention this. Um, not good news, but nevertheless, the um, men in the uh, Ahmad Arbery case, uh, they were sentenced for, quote, hate crimes. So those men who uh, found that Arbery fellow, you know, moving around areas in the neighborhood, uh, possibly being attached to a string of unsolved thefts, and of course, I'm not sure everyone knows what happened, the video of, of what happened when um, Arbery got shot. But anyway, these men, a father and son, Travis McMichael, age 35, Gregor McMichael, 66, were both sentenced to life without parole, as well as someone who filmed the thing was also sentenced to uh, life with possibility of parole after 30 years. And they're saying that this is a, quote, hate crime. That's how it's been categorized. And of course, many of us, I'm sure probably all of us, don't agree with this, um, this sentencing at all. But uh, we live in a post-truth world, unfortunately. And things like this will happen. They even named a street after this guy so it's kind of like what they've done with floyd what they did with martin luther king they're just kind of uh establishing or cementing into history these mini hollow hoaxes if you will just so when people look back at history they'll know this false trance state of things that actually things that happened as opposed to what actually happened yeah that was um not good news to hear about this to get to get life for something like that. And I don't think this is like a psyop where it was fake or anything like that, where I do feel that about the Floyd thing. I think this was just um, an incident where some white men tried to protect their neighborhood and things happened. And now they're being called, you know, basically a hate crime. They're getting charged with a hate crime. And how is this going to reflect going into the, the prison system with this on your, you know, on your back, essentially, right? You can just imagine what that's going to be like. Uh, that's intense. Very, very intense. And I guess they're saying that it was a, quote, hate crime because they're saying that he was profiled for being black. But, I mean, we know that, you know, knowing the race stats that we know, it's many a times that they're they're involved in these criminal pursuits. What is it? They're thirteen percent of the population here in the states, and they create fifty percent of the crimes. So it's it's a very fitting sentencing for a post truth world that's in um, a trance state. Terrible news, but you know, worth 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 reporting on if anyone hasn't heard about uh, the sentencing for that event right there. So now I think I will end the show with a little quote that I happened to see whilst I was on Telegram early today. I think it sums everything up um, very succinctly. So it's a quote from The Warrior Poet, Book One, Valuation, by a gent named Kurt Eggers. I'm not familiar with who this is, who this is, but I like what he has to say. I think it I think it really fits in with many of the topics talked about on, on the broadcasts. So here's the quote. The value of community is determined by the spirit that fills it. The spirit is determined by the attitude that the community carries. 
This attitude is the outflow of blood and will energies that have united in the character, which leads to the formation of the community. So if it's that outflow of blood and will energies, it's got to be at the root that that's of important value. And yes, it's all those little ripple effects that lead to that formation of, of any community, whether it be an online community or whether it be an IRL community. So I think we'll leave it at that for this week's broadcast, The Trance Agenda. I appreciate you listening to the broadcast. Be sure to catch all the broadcasts, mini clips, all that jazz on White Wellness Radio. Be sure to follow on Telegram, Twitter, Instagram, Patreon, all that. So I'm wishing everyone a lovely Tuesday and a great week. And I will be connecting with everybody again soon. All right, everybody. Satnam.